0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023 Potential savings will vary Discounts not available in all states and situations Hi, I'm Debbie Millman Canva is great for
1: designing visual content for work no matter what industry or department you work in At canva.com. Designed for work.
0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from DesignObserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Aisha Bursal about her expansive career as an industrial designer and how she uses art and design to reconstruct one's personal and professional life around a core idea.
2: Your values are your foundation. So how do you capture what your values are?
0: Here's Debbie Millman.
2: Can you
1: deconstruct your life on just two pieces of paper? Impossible, you say? Designer and teacher Aisha Bursell wants all of us to tackle this project. Her latest book, Design the Life You Love, teaches people how they use the tools of design to make something better out of our messy lives. Beyond her book, her design work can be found in the permanent collections of the Museum of Modern Art, the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum, and the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Aisha Bursal, welcome to Design Matters.
2: Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Last fall,
1: you read the book The Martian by Andy Weir, and I
2: understand that it made you want to be a scientist. Why is that? Because I thought reading The Martian, it was all about problem-solving and very creatively and optimism and not giving up, and those things are very close to my heart. You know, I always come at it from the designer's point of view, and I thought, It would be really cool if I had the left brain to do it from the engineering side of things as well.
1: Are you suggesting that this scientist and botanist also might be a designer?
2: I think so. I mean, he single-handedly designs his life on Mars, right?
1: (laughs) Yes, I only wish it was true, right? (laughs) You were born in Izmir, Turkey, and I read that from the time you were five years old, you loved to draw paint, and play with (laughs) (laughs) Play-Doh. Have you always wanted to be an artist? I understand your family comes from a long tradition of law.
2: Yes. And, you know, when you put it that way, I feel like I'm still that five-year-old girl. (laughs) I remember clearly asking my mother when I was five that I wanted to have art lessons, and she listened to me. I started art lessons when I was five years old, and I remember those days and feeling like this incredible power to draw with brushes and color. And I thought I was very accomplished. (laughs) (laughs) That's nice. That's a good feeling.
1: Did you always want to be an artist and a designer from that moment on? Or did you ever waver and think about doing other things?
2: No, I wanted to be a lawyer for the longest time. But then this love of drawing kept me at a different place. I thought, you know, I love drawing so much that I can't really do only law. And so I decided to do architecture. Art, I thought, is too lonely, and you're only answering to yourself. And I wanted some more constraints. And I thought architecture would be that kind of discipline.
1: How did your family react to your decision not to pursue law?
2: They were incredibly supportive. How far back
1: does it go in your family? Were they just all lawyers? Everybody in my family was a pharmacist, so I totally get <laughs> yeah. that sort of familial legacy that you feel pressured by. There was no way I was going to be a pharmacist.
2: You understand. I, I think all the way back to my uh, great-grandfather. Wow. But then my brother and I, we took a different road. You
1: fell in love with the human scale of design when you were 16, from what I understand, and a family friend came to tea and asked you if you knew what product design was, and you didn't. So what happened next?
2: He took this teacup that was a beautiful teacup and said, you know how the edge is curved It's so that it fits our lips better, and the handle helps us hold hot liquid in our hands. And then the saucer is there so that if we spill some of the tea. We don't ruin your mom's tablecloth. (laughs) And that, to this day, is one of the best explanations of what product design is and its human scale and human-centered thinking. And you're right, I fell in love at that very moment and I thought, this is what I want to do.
1: You first studied product design at Middle East Technical University in Turkey. Um. So you didn't study architecture then, and you ended up not studying architecture, I assume.
2: Exactly. So this school had just started, and when I entered it, it hadn't given any, any graduates yet.
1: Oh, you were the first graduating class? I was
2: the third graduating class. Okay.
1: So it's such a new school, you must have been willing to take quite a lot of risks going to a place that didn't really have a reputation or any real proven methodology.
2: You know, I was 16. I didn't know any better. You know, I give a lot of credit to my parents. They didn't question it and they didn't say, are you sure? You know, they didn't even know that I didn't write any alternative schools, that there was only one choice. And if I didn't get in, that was it. You know, I had to wait another year. So,
1: Talk about taking risks on multiple levels. <laughs> You then came to the United States in 1986 to pursue a graduate degree at Pratt on a Fulbright scholarship. Um, What was the transition like coming from Turkey to the U.S.? Was that your first time visiting where you came to live here or had you been here before and, and really understood what you were getting into?
2: Good question. I didn't know what I was getting into.
1: What did you get into? (laughs) Tell us everything.
2: (laughs) All right. I had this inner feeling, this drive that I had to come to New York, that I think a lot of people who end up in New York have that. You don't know why, but you're drawn to it. And one of my teachers in high school um, was a graduate of Pratt Institute in industrial design. And he had, like me, grown up in Izmir, And he came back to Izmir to teach, and he was my art teacher. And he would tell me about Pratt and his teachers. And Pratt has this incredible 3D discipline in teaching how to think in 3D, in three dimensions. He would try to give me the same exercises, and I didn't understand anything he was talking about. But he was planting these seeds, and I think that's what led me to Pratt. His teachers became my teachers.
1: Speaking of three-dimensional design, um, one of your teachers, Rowena Reed Costello, was a big influence on you. She was over 80 years old when you met her. And she not only became your teacher, she also became your friend. Yes. And for those that might not be aware, Rowena Reed Costello was the co-founder of a methodology of three-dimensional visual thinking and taught how to create something really beautiful and dynamic and well-balanced in three dimensions. And Aisha, you've described it just like you would create a, a beautiful piece of music, that creating in this way is similar to creating a beautiful piece of music. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the methodology, how it's influenced your work, and why you would compare three-dimensional design to music.
2: I'm so glad you asked that question, though, because Rowena Reed Costello is almost a hidden treasure And the reason I compare it to music is because there's an incredible discipline to teaching and learning music, fine-tuning your ear and understanding how to create sound in space. And she applied a similar thinking to creating beauty in three dimensions in space. And the way she would teach it is she would tell us, look, everything in space has a dominant a subdominant, and a subordinate. And if you can hold those three things in tension and create positive and negative space, then you'll succeed. And she would drill that into us with different exercises, line exercises, plane exercises, spatial exercises, until we understood what dominant is, subdominant is, and subordinate, and how to hold them in tension. Can you give us an
1: example of what those would be? What a dominant, a subdominant, and a subordinate might be in a particular example?
2: The example that comes to my mind is one of the simplest volume exercises that she would have us do is to create these rectangular forms. And the dominant would be visually and three-dimensionally perhaps the biggest object and the subdominant would be slightly smaller, and the subordinate would be like the cherry on top. But then you would have to either vertically or horizontally, or by creating angles, hold them in a certain relationship to each other. And in such a way, she would hold your hands in such a way and say, this is the tension we're looking for. So as if
1: there was something magical in between your two hands about six inches apart.
2: Exactly. And then if... You pull them apart too much, the tension broke. If you brought them together too much, the tension broke and you had to find those things. And she would start with very simple exercises until you understood it and then made it more and more sophisticated until you could create three-dimensional form in space and move to actual design—design design of products or spaces. So, using
1: some of the principles of electromagnetism, maybe.
2: <laughs> <laughs> At the time, she lived in Soho. Um, she showed me where Dean Deluca was when Dean and Deluca was like mm, this tiny place. Yes, a treasure back then. Exactly, an olive across, and the kind of bread to buy and the sandwich to buy, and to eat half of your sandwich, and then. Eat the rest later, and these are Isn't things. That...
1: incredible when you meet somebody that teaches you how to live. Yeah, <laughs> I had somebody like that in the '80s too. I, I worked for a woman named Karen Lippert, and she had a public relations agency, and she hired me to do a lot of graphic design work for her. And she taught me how to throw a party and how to set a table. And I feel like she taught me how to become an adult.
2: Yes, we're, we're on the same page. She told me, um, I say, you need a personal shopper. <laughs>
1: Karen told me I had to change my wardrobe. <laughs> Bruce Hanna was the chair of the product design department at Pratt, and he was also your thesis advisor. And I read that as you were graduating, he asked you to collaborate with him on a project for Knoll, designing office accessories. I that's not bad for our first job. You got credit for that as well, right I did. out of school.
2: He and Andrew Kogan at Knoll gave me credit for it. And the orchestra office accessories are still to this day on, on the market. I agree. That was a great break. What
1: kind of work did you do immediately after? Did you look for a full-time job or were you interested in continuing to consult and get commissions?
2: You know, because I was ignorant and foolish, I thought, well, I'll just continue doing this without realizing how hard it is to get projects like that. And so for a couple of years after that, I tried to start my own studio and freelanced and looked for different projects and couldn't get them and then thought I should go back to school and study law. I <laughs> did? I did. Oh, you had that moment of self-doubt, but you didn't do it. I had this project with Toto that came just at the right moment. Was that the comfortable toilet seat? Yeah. <laughs> and that, that was thanks to um, Tucker V. Meister. My thesis project was The Water Room, and it was about the beauty of water in nature. And Toto was doing the seminar on water and different world cultures. And Tucker, without even telling me, sent them my thesis. And he said, well, you should invite this Turkish woman to talk about Turkish baths. And plus, she did this beautiful conceptual bathroom and then they not only invited me to their seminar, but then they invited me to go live in Japan and design toilets. And so you
1: designed the world's most comfortable toilet seat. Tell us about what that is
2: like. How do you do market research on a comfortable toilet seat? Debbie, we need like a whole day to talk about that. It's fascinating. <laughs> the way you do research about it is you get people drunk And then they start telling you their most intimate stories, and it always starts in childhood when they were little. Okay. And uh, there were two things. I was really hung up on the toilet seats not being comfortable and thought, you know, why isn't this designed like a chair? And so that was my um, approach to it. The toilet seat should be designed for the person and not for the porcelain or the china that's holding it. And then the other thing was, when I was a kid, I loved cleaning toilets. Why? In those days, when you went to restaurants, in the bathrooms, there would be a little plate with a little note for tips for the person who cleaned the toilet. So I would clean the toilet in our house, and I had a little plate with a tip note on it. But I was (laughs) really a little kid, and... I knew all about cleaning toilets, and I thought, this is a god-awful job. You know, somebody needs to figure out how to make an easy-to-clean toilet seat. And so we ended up making the lid and the seat detachable so that you could wash it and brush it under the faucet and put it back on.
1: Wonderful. You've said that design and drawing can change lives and loves. And this is probably most apparent in your life uh, in the mid-90s when you fell in love with designer Bibi Sack while working on a project in Paris. What was the project? And can you please tell us everything about how that happened, especially since you are married to him now?
2: Yes, office romance. (laughs) It's Scandal. Scandal, exactly. It was 2001, actually, in I was working with Renault, the French automobile manufacturer, and they called me up one day and said, Aisha, we're going to send you one of our best designers and you're going to love him. And Yep. <laughs> apparently, they told Bibi the same thing. You're going to love Aisha. And so we, when we met, we fell in love. Instant. Three weeks. Wow. Kind of.
1: <laughs> so BB then moved to New York and you began to build a business together in addition to having two children, along with BB's son from a former relationship, you were a family of five with a new business, a new city for BB, and a relatively new relationship. So everything changed all at once for you. What was that like? How did you manage all of that change?
2: It was wonderful.
1: So you're not a person who's afraid of change or worried about uncertainty?
2: No, it felt very certain that we fell in love. We had a family. I think when you're in love, you go with it.
1: And how did that being in love change your working relationship?
2: That's a big question.
1: I've got time.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and we fell in love working together, but I must say that it took us maybe 10 years to figure out how to work together.
1: Really? Yes. Did you sort of butt heads in terms of aesthetic or power and control? Or like, what was some of the tensions?
2: The tension is I'm always right. Ah, of course. So <laughs> 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 okay. Bibi B- <laughs> B- thinks he's always right, so... We're two very strong personalities. So how do you navigate that? How do you how do you negotiate two
1: strong personalities trying to collaborate?
2: I think it took us time to figure out how we balance each other. I think it would have been easier if one of us was the creative and the other was more the business person. But we're both creative. But my strength is in conceptual thinking. And Bibi's strength is in designing products. And so now we find in that creative field that um, we can kind of take turns. Eventually, this is why we fell in love. And so we fell back on that. But we had to kind of go around at 360 and try all kinds of different things. You've stated that you
1: believe that we're all shaped by our preconceptions. Objects, situations, and reality come to us pre-packaged as a coherent whole. And I love that notion. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I find myself doing that all the time in how I think I self-select my reality and self-select the things that I actually want to see. Why do we do that? Is it something about our humanness?
2: I wonder if it's about civilization. I think our education is all about leading us to those shortcuts and rules and preconceptions of what's right, what's wrong, how things are supposed to be. And why do we use objects to help us understand that? As designers and manufacturers of products, we think of things through products. So we're product-centric, but the people who use products can't care less about products, actually, they live their lives and they live experiences. And the products within those experiences are either facilitators or hinderers. And often I find that we need to get to the side of the experience of the life as a whole, understand that, and then from that perspective, design products or things or experiences.
1: Then products become conduits to experience.
2: Yes. Yes. And I think Steve Jobs really understood this. And that's why we, we loved him.
1: Aisha, let's talk about your new book, Design the Life You Love. I understand that the book started out as an experiment. How so?
2: It started as an experiment because I didn't know what I was doing, but I wanted to do it. I had just developed my own design process, deconstruction, reconstruction. And I thought that I needed a project to try it on. And I, for a long time, had thought that my life is my biggest project, my design project. And I thought, well, now I have a process. Can I apply my process to my life? A friend of mine, Shirley Moulton, had just started Academy of Life about teaching people lessons we don't learn at school. And she said, actually, that's an interesting idea. I can give you a workshop if you want to do that. And so I put together a workshop around that. You include an
1: absolutely marvelous quote by one of my heroes, Ralph Kaplan, who has also been on Design Matters. He wrote you a letter which stated, Dear Aisha, when it comes to life, there is no such thing as design. There is only redesign.
2: I thought what Ralph was telling me, Aisha, come on, you don't get people to design their life as if it all starts with you. Everybody's been designing their lives all throughout their lives, but that I'm just um, bringing maybe a new set of tools to it. Ralph
1: grounded me as he usually does. I want to talk about the process. You have a four-stage process in your deconstruction, reconstruction. The first is deconstruction. The second is point of view. The third is reconstruction. And then the fourth is expression. Can you talk a little bit about each of the processes, the stages, and how you've created this framework?
2: Of course. So deconstruction is taking something apart to see what it's made up of. And then point of view is being able to look at the same parts from a different perspective to create new value. Reconstruction is the other side of deconstruction. It's putting the pieces back together again, but knowing that you can't have everything. So you need to make choices and you need to prioritize. And then expression is giving it form, some tangibility.
1: The deconstruction is a bit dangerous. Um, (laughs) Why is it when we break something open, it's impossible to put it back the same way?
2: That's what's so neat about deconstruction is that when you break something apart, you're also breaking those preconceptions, those links and reflexes and the automations of this goes together with this. Well, it doesn't anymore. So the links are gone and that gives you a whole new way of rearranging and creating new links and then adding new things and maybe putting new things together.
1: Is it about breaking patterns Definitely. One of the things that I find to be so remarkable about the need to deconstruct any life, really, is how willingly we buy into our own self-limitation. How does a deconstruction and a reconstruction help you get out of that constraint?
2: When you deconstruct your life or anything that you want to redesign, you're also breaking this massive idea life, this big thing, and you're seeing what it's made up of in smaller pieces. So that makes it much more manageable. And you understand, you know, it's not this unified whole. It's actually made up of parts and pieces that you can manipulate. And I think that's what's so liberating about it. It's kind of like making an ingredients list. Maybe you don't want those exact ingredients to go in the exact way before And then when you're reconstructing, you're making those decisions. Again, it's important to realize we don't have the time and energy to have all of the parts and pieces. So where do you want to spend your time and energy? You've stated that the framework will
1: not promise a happy life, but you can create an original life that has your values It seems to me that if you can create an original life that is infused with your values, it will result in a happy life. (laughs) I think happiness, when people seek happiness, it feels so elusive. It feels much more concrete to seek tangible things that you feel represent what you want and who you are. And then happiness comes from that. But how does the framework help create an original life that has your values?
2: I love that question first of all, you need to remember and be reminded of what your values are. And again, I think in all design, product design or life design, your values are your foundation. So how do you capture what your values are? And in the book, there's a heroes exercise where I ask people about who their heroes are, and that these heroes are not superheroes, they're people they might know. They could also be people they know of. But that these people, their heroes have something that interests them, that maybe qualities that they aspire to. And our heroes become our inspiration. And through that inspiration, we discover what our values are. And then once we know our values, then we have our value system to make choices. And we could say, well, I want to live an honest life. Well, what does that mean? What kind of choices do I need to make? So it forces intention. It forces intention.
1: In the point of view phase, you write, in order to think about your life differently, pick a metaphor for your life today and then choose one for your life tomorrow. As you were creating this framework and, and were the guinea pig in this process, can you give an example of what you might have chosen about your metaphor for your life today and then one for tomorrow that you were hoping for?
2: I love metaphors because they help us understand complex things in relation to things we know. So I thought this is a great tool to understand our own life. And my metaphor for life was and still is that I'm a tree. Elaborate. In what way? (laughs) Roots, branches, leaves,
1: systems of water delivery.
2: Being my first student, I tried it on for measure, and I started drawing this tree. And I drew the roots, and I thought, my roots are in Turkey. That's my past. That's where I grew up, and that's my culture, my family. And then I drew the trunk, and I thought, oh, this is my present. This is New York. This is kind of where I'm above ground, and... I'm stronger and um, this is where I design things and I have a process. And then I thought, okay, well, what's my future then? And I thought, if I am from Turkey and now I live in New York, maybe my future should be the world and I should have branches and fruit and seeds. And I realized that my future is about sharing and that I need to teach what I've learned. And suddenly this whole idea of Teaching design, the life you love, teaching design, writing a book, doing workshops, it all fell into place. And my metaphor explained myself to me, which I just wanted to say you said it forces intention. It also helps build coherence. And I think design is all about building coherence between your constraints, your values, and the possibilities.
1: But you've also stated that a person simply cannot have everything, Aisha. and you suggest that if you want to have more, you need to make what you want and what you need coexist. How does one go about doing that?
2: That's probably the, the richest of design tools, is to make those two opposing things coexist. But I'll give you an example that I think about almost every day, and that's I want to be on vacation but I need to work. (laughs) So how do you make those two things coexist? And one of the ways in which I've made harmony between work and vacation is by working while I'm on vacation.
1: But a lot of people would say that's not a good idea,
2: that you need to really
1: disconnect.
2: If you love what you do, I would suggest that you try it. And it doesn't have to be your whole vacation. You just give it one hour of free thinking, And it could be learning, it could be creating. But to be free of email and meetings and all the other constraints and to purely think about something you love that you call work is incredibly rewarding. Now, there's the other side of the coin that I'm still trying to figure out, and that is how do I go on vacation while I'm working? Mm -hmm. So every day, Mm -hmm. how do I create my vacation? Like talking to you now... This is my vacation. This is wonderful. Thank you. Do you believe that designers think differently than others? Designers do think differently than others. For one, we're optimists. We always think that we're going to come up with a better solution, no matter what the problem, and that drives our energy. We love that. We have bundles of empathy. We can put ourselves in other people's shoes. We think holistically. We see the big picture. We're very good at working collaboratively and kind of bringing different disciplines together. And we constantly ask what-if questions, and that opens up possibilities. And we're not afraid to play.
1: Speaking of play, there is a sense of playfulness all throughout design, the life you love, not just the writing or the tone, but even in your illustration style. How intentional was this, or is it just your natural style?
2: It was my natural style, but it was also intentional. It took me three years to figure out my voice is this. Um, Because when I first started thinking about the book, I thought, well, a book needs to be written. And so I wrote this whole thing that I haven't um, touched ever since because it was so boring. (laughs) It just took me such a long time to remember I'm a designer. I express my thoughts and ideas through drawing. So why don't I draw this? And then I write about it. Can non-designers design their life? Or is this something that's
1: only really catered to designers?
2: It's for everyone. And actually, non-designers, this is one thing I've learned through doing design, the life you love, for now six years, is that ordinary people... And that's what I call non-designers very <laughs> affectionately. They are extraordinarily creative when they're given a set of tools in process. And that's been the most wonderful discovery of all, is that you don't need to be a designer to think like a designer and to design your life.
1: If people want to go beyond the book, are there workshops that regular people can take?
2: Yes, I still teach Lovingly, the workshops, the School of Visual Arts, that's where I teach the Design the Life You Love workshops. Wonderful.
1: The last thing I want to talk to you about, Aisha, is about Katy Perry. (laughs) (laughs) Towards the end of your book, you state you'd like to be considered the Katy Perry of Design the Life You Love. How and why Katy Perry?
2: My... Daughters are now 11 and 12, but they introduced me to Katy Perry when they were uh, 9 and 10. They were watching her documentary of being on tour. Part of me? Yes. Yes. And um, so I watched it too, and I just fell in love with the way she connects with young audiences and their parents, especially mothers and daughters, through the beauty of her music. And how disciplined she is. No matter what happens in her life, she is there to perform at the top of her performance. And she does it with her friends and her family. So I really like that. And a couple days later, this idea of being the Katy Perry of design, the life you love, popped into my head. And I thought, I'm going to draw that out as my vision map. And I did. And then I drew it up big on this easel pad, and then I showed it to Bibi and I said, this is what I want to do. I want to be the Katy Perry of Design, The Life You Love. And he said, I can see that. <laughs> Supportive husband. Supportive husband. And then I showed it to my kids, and um, they loved that idea. And so when my book came out, my 10-year-old said to me, so, Mom, when are we going on tour I need need to make it happen.
1: One of the things that I love most about the book is the process that you outlined for your own life that showed your hopes and dreams about making a book that is then you're holding in your hands the manifestation of the results of your own process. And I really loved the notion that with the right tools and the right guidance, you can be amazed how much imagination people can have about their own futures. Thank you so much for being on Design Matters today, Aisha.
2: Ayesha. I feel so fortunate to be here. Thank you so much. You can find
1: out more about Aisha Bursal and her book, Design the Life You Love, on her website, A-Y-S-E-B-I-R-S-E-L dot com. This is the 11th anniversary of Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI powered place.